if you were around this church on Christmas Eve, and you don't need to have been, I'm going to catch everyone up, but if you were around this church on Christmas Eve, you witnessed me breaking one of my long-held personal rules. I told you on Christmas Eve as we began to discuss the story itself, the story that we have for Christmas, I told you that Christmas was a wolf, not a Pomeranian. What I was referencing is that the story itself is wild, but over the course of its telling, over the course of the last 2,000 years, as we've told and retold and retold the Christmas story, that story has become utterly domesticated. So utterly domesticated that as we have sung just a few verses ago, we have a little baby Jesus who is such a good baby that he doesn't even cry. The rule that I broke is no weird stuff on Christmas. <clears throat> because the reality of the Christmas story is that we want that domesticated story. It's endearing, it's important, it's nostalgic, it brings us together, and it offers a measure of warmth to the experience of celebrating Christmas. And yet there are some years, and I would contend that this year is one of those years, where we need that wolfy Christmas. We need to have some sense that God can meet us in the wildness, in the chaos, in the crisis, in the complexity of our real lives. I feel like we need to know that some years, and I feel like this is one of those years. I would say that about Christmas 1, but here we sit at Christmas 2, and there's another rule about Christmas 2 that exists, and that is Christmas 2 is always very weird. You can't escape the weirdness when the gospel reading is this prologue to John's gospel. John decidedly marches, John the evangelist, the gospel writer, decidedly marches to the beat of his own drummer. He tells the story of the life of Jesus and all those who are around him, no doubt, but he does it out of sequence and out of time. He does it with so many more words than his companion Mark that it is sort of like Mark is <clears throat> Hemingway, and John is Faulkner. If there is a word that can be used, John uses it. But our focus this morning on John's gospel is these first 18 verses, and it's a wild departure from a gospel narrative itself. John begins with a poem of sorts, a big poem, and preachers like me make mistakes year in and year out on 
Christmas too, when we try to parse each of these 18 verses, what we really see in these 18 verses is like a huge, wide mural. And we're meant to see the story from the very beginning all the way forward to this morning. And if I were to parse those 18 verses, what it would be like is coming in close to a big mural and like looking at like a six by six square of it and telling you what I see there. And the reality of looking that closely is we miss this wonderful, wild, creative, cosmic, mystical beginning that is John's gospel. John, the evangelist, does this amazing work of like grabbing one side of the curtain that hangs in front of creation and he draws it all the way back, telling us in poetry and imagery a rich story about God becoming enfleshed, enfleshed just like you and me, and living amongst us. Living amongst us then, and most assuredly, living amongst us today. It is, and it always is, a wild and weird story. So Christmas 2 starts way out there in outer space, viewing the active creation that God is engaging in from the beginning of time up until this very morning. And then the architecture of Christmas 2 gives us these two other rich stories that are exceedingly important so that we might take this cosmic story and we might bring it home. The next beat of the story is not about the cosmos. It's about the corporate nature of people. First, it's about Israel, and then today, it's about us. It's about the ecclesia, the people called out, about the church, those of us who are seeking to embody the faith in our lives together on this very day, in the recent past, and in the near future. And the architecture of Christmas, too, does it with this incredibly dynamic poem, another poem that began in our hearing a few weeks ago with the very first words of Isaiah chapter 61. If you have a sense of what happens throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, you know that the beginning, it's not necessarily gloom and doom, but it's pretty heavy. It's like, hey, you guys, hey, y'all, hey, Israel, hey, lowercase c church, hey, St. John's, get your acts together. 
This is important stuff. And as we move through the story, when we land on the 61st chapter, there's a change that happens, a beautiful, nurturing change. The prophet stands up, still speaking to Israel, still speaking to us, and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that spirit has sent me to proclaim good news. And then the spirit begins to narrate what good news looks like. Release to prisoners. There's a liberative action happening in this new new news that we're hearing from Isaiah the prophet. There's nurture. There's a measure of loving kindness that comes through in the early verses. It's not in um, the bulletin that you have now. I'm starting at the first verse, and yours begins at the 10th verse, but the poem holds as a whole. And what it reads as is something gentle and beautiful and nurturing to the people of Israel and to people like you and me. A couple of Sundays ago, I was sitting in church at the 8 o'clock service, and I don't remember exactly who was reading it, Patria or Robbie or, or Doyen, but I heard so clearly this gorgeous line that we have. I think it's the third verse of that 61st chapter where Isaiah proclaims that God intends to bring us a garland rather than ashes, a woven flowered crown will sit upon our heads, something actively creative and beautiful rather than the charred dust that comes from the chaos and craziness of our lives. It goes on to say that God will anoint us, will anoint our bodies and our lives with an enriching, nourishing oil of gladness. The idea is we have moved from the cosmos down to the people. And what Isaiah the prophet is telling people like you and me is that this thing that we do together coming together, seeking to love one another through compassion and loving kindness, it's a good thing. It's not just a good thing, it's a godly thing. And oh, by the way, if you thought God was just that powerful deity up in the cosmos, throwing lightning bolts down on humanity and the rest of the creatures and all of creation, I'm here to tell you that God, God's self, is weaving a plant-like flowered crown to sit upon your head. The prophet Isaiah almost fast-forwards to Matthew's fifth chapter where Jesus casts his vision in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, reminding us that those who are poor in spirit, 
that those of us who are imprisoned, imprisoned by external oppression or imprisoned by our own inner social, emotional, spiritual movements, that we are liberated, that the world is turned upside down and it is no longer ruled by power, but rather ruled by love, which comes in the form of nurture and care and tenderness delivered cosmically and delivered in a flesh-like manner across the relationships that we have one with another. It's a beautiful second beat in this poem that we have in the 61st chapter of Isaiah. There is a third beat that's just as important and might sound weird to the ear as we're really listening to it. It's Paul engaging in this philosophical apologetic about what our relationship with God looks like under this cosmic and corporate vision that John the Evangelist talks about and that Isaiah prophesies about. And he uses this beautiful metaphor, a metaphor that is so very near and dear to my heart. I can tell you the most profound experience that I have ever had, and I'm just talking about me, Jimmy Bartz, the most profound experience that I have ever had is going to Los Angeles International Airport with my wife, Cindy, meeting 25 other families in that airport, boarding an airplane, flying across the Pacific Ocean, landing in China, spending one night in Guangzhou, then with 13 other families, getting on an airplane and flying to Nanning, checking into a hotel room and cleaning ourselves up, boarding a bus, driving across Nanning, a small city in China of six and a half million people, Ascending stairs into a second floor hotel ballroom. Chinese officials enter the room where 13 couples are waiting. After some conversation in Chinese and some, some translation in English, within 35 minutes, if you were to start a timer, within 35 minutes, 13. 13 couples, 13 couples, almost all who have endured things like loss or rugged infertility, 13 couples became families in 35 minutes. When that Chinese official handed me my darling daughter, Jade, and put her in my arms for the first time, there was a trajectory of loving kindness that began and still today extends into my personal life 
in such a powerful way. Now, to be clear, I acknowledge I'm a dude. I can't bear a child. That is a beautiful experience as well. But I'm telling you my story and how that story, that personal experience, has made an impression on my life. It's Paul who grabs the metaphor of adoption and helps it land to these individuals in the church in Galatia to which he writes. He's like, no, no, you guys are not bound by a spirit of slavery. This life, this God love life, your individual life, it's not about following rules. It's not at all about following rules. It's about being adopted, adopted into this loving, creative, beautiful, powerful, cosmic, mystic, nurturing family. He's saying, you, Jimmy, and you, Lockie, and you, Anne, and you, Francis, and you, Kathy, you, you are my children, You are my adopted children. And then he goes on further to say, and if children, then heirs. All that goodness who is God, that is God, all of that is coming to you and to me in a beautiful, powerful, personal way. Christmas, too, is always, always weird. But what do we do with it? It almost always lands on the 31st or adjacent, right? Like, it's always there. It's always right on the eve of this new year. It gives us this wonderful opportunity to have this fresh start. So as we step over the threshold into this new year, we do that with a sense that we are creatures. Creatures created with God's identity stamped onto us And that identity is love. We're creatures amidst John's cosmic vision. We're also a people. It's the the y'all, not the you. We all together are called out to engage God's work in the world, creative and nurturing and loving, to come together arm in arm, hand in hand, to do that work together. And then the third beat, as we move into this new year, that third beat, it gets personal, right? It's you, Jack. It's you, Carol. It's you, Christy. It's you, Emmy. It's you, Tana. You, little old you, and little old you, and little old me. We are children of God, beloved children 
who were adopted into a family in the past that has a beautiful present and we have an enormously promising future as heirs of the good love work that God has in store for little old you and little old me. That's all I got for you on Christmas too. Amen.